what I'm going to ask us to do as a final piece of worship to God, and I'm just going to ask this of the Lord to help us, but Lord, I want to pray that you would help us in this last, uh, just say half hour, we're going to share together, to um, not be in a hurry to get on with the rest of the day and, and to bring our minds into a point of submitted worship to you, which means that we are going to engage in focus and intentionally, Lord, just say that we're, we're now finishing this well. We are going to just bring our hearts before you and not just be off, off and running, forgetting everything that we've done. We're going to try to consolidate what we've experienced together, what we've shared together as brothers in Christ. We're going to try to glean a final word from you. It has to do with the, um, challenging our hearts to become the kind of guys that you really want us to be, Lord, as we, as we make our way through this life, which we've already talked about, it's a short one. And um, we've got an opportunity to contribute. And I just want to ask you, Lord, to help us with our attitudes. We heard a little bit this morning about attitude. And um, we opened up the session the first night with that word from Isaiah 64-7. Who is there among us who will stir himself up to take hold of the Lord? To stir our, will we stir ourselves up to take hold of you? And that, re, that reminds us of the responsibility that is in our, on our part to stir ourselves up to take hold of you. And that's about passion. We've been talking about passion. And I just pray that you would fill us with passion, Lord, um, to, to begin to act on a lot of the things you've been impressing into our heart. And, I, and last thing I'll, I'll pray, Lord, is that perhaps it's just not maybe one big thing, but it's a, it's a lot of little things incrementally that make us better. And, and when we begin to just get little things better, the end result is a better guy who's, who's focusing on a lot of different areas, but slowly we become more, more usable for you, Lord. We become more of a vessel that you can flow through. And so I just pray in our closing minutes here, Lord, that you would just be with us in presence. Holy Spirit, again, without you we can do nothing. Uh, every work of righteousness, at best, filthy rags apart from you. Uh, flawed and messed up, God, you alone. And we need your Spirit. We need you, Holy Spirit, to work in our lives. And we ask for you to inspire us in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, just sitting right with that, that prayer point. Uh, the zeal. Of somebody says, you know, what passion bleeds. And there is something about the idea of us showing that we care. I mean, I know we make fun of, uh, since he's walking out the door, I'll... We make, <laughs> we make fun of Keung, right? Because we know that if you give him 10 minutes of speaking, inevitably he's going to start beginning to weep. He, he can't help it. And, uh, <laughs> and, 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 okay, not weep, but teary-eyed. He will get teary-eyed. And it's, it, to me, I love it. Because he's in pretty good company if you read John eleven thirty five, 35, the first verse I ever memorized, by the way, Jesus wept. It's a really easy one when you're in a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, so you're in a contest, right? Um, but, you know, Jesus, Jesus was a man of, also of tears. And, and he wasn't soft. He wasn't weak. He was meek. 
Meek is different than weak. Meek is power under control. I've got it, but I'm using it in measured tones. It flows out of a character and a quality of humility, so it's very different. Weakness is just an inability to act or an incapacity. Jesus wasn't weak. He was meek and lowly, humble. He was also fierce and ferocious. And I talked about that, and maybe that's an exaggeration. Maybe ferocious is not a good word. But I was thinking about the, um, this concept in Hebrews 12.2. I just will look there real quick. Hebrews 12.2. Um, we are told to look to Jesus. And you know what, guys? Actually, I'm not going to go into it because of the time frame. So let me just refer to it, and we'll go somewhere else. We'll go to John 2. Go to John 2 instead. But in Hebrews 12, 2, we were told to look to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. What is referred to in verse 1, Hebrews 12, again, is that there's a cloud of witnesses. The hall of faith that is rooting us on to pursue the way of the Lord. But then the writer of Hebrews pulls out and says, Jesus is our ultimate example. Looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You know, who for the, what, the race that was set before him, this whole idea of the joy that was set before him, this whole idea of enduring, completing. Um, man, maybe I better have us look at it. All right, let's go to Let's just look at it real quick. Hebrews 12, we'll go over there real quick. It's fast. All right, Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, went through, endured, you know, the cross, despised the shame that he would not be, be um, held down by the scorn of that defeat, but he, and he has now sat down at the, the right hand of the throne of God. But we have this whole idea of looking unto Jesus as our inspiration. As you know, Rusty talked about the shadow and how really our ultimate leader and example is Jesus. And, and what we're reading here in Hebrews 12 is that Jesus is the ultimate example of the focused, faith-filled life. That if we want to, if we want to garner out uh, what it means to really live the life that is pleasing to God, that Jesus is going to be the one who is inspiring, who inspires us. He is the one that we are supposed to gain strength from. And I was talking, thinking about this whole idea of, of tenacity in relation to the to the cross. But there was this other incident, because no one can doubt that, that Jesus was tenacious in the way that he went through the cross. But there was an incident early on in his ministry, and now we'll jump over to John 2. Let's just do that. In John 2 and verse 13. And um, at the outset of Jesus' relatively at the outset of his ministry, I, I believe there are two times where he does this that's recorded. This is... This is the first time it's mentioned in the scriptures and the gospels. It says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, verse 13, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, that was preparation, Mark, uh, right? <laughs> there was some preparation there. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, he made a whip of cords. And uh, he didn't just do that fast. It was, uh, it was thoughtful, which is, boy, what do you do with that? If you're, you know, Jesus, Jesus is, is being physical. How do we slot that into our paradigm? 
And he's not just, I mean, it's calculated and it's thoughtful and it's a prepared weapon. Gee. Thank you for the more passive among us. That's another option. <laughs> option. Um, uh, the, it, 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 the, you can think of it that way. I, let's call it a tool. Let's call it a purging tool, all right? But the idea here is that, and I'll, I'm not really, I'm not at this point not trying to make a case beyond anything that clearly we have to take note that Jesus in this particular case breaks out of the norm and takes his time and, and creates something of a cord, of a whip. And he has an intention to utilize it for a physical purpose. And, you know, this is sitting right there. And I think it, it merits our attention. Um, we go on to read that it says that he, he made the whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple. That's physical. With sheep and oxen. And he poured out the changer's money and overturned the tables. It was not passive. And then he said to those who sold doves, take these things out of here. Do not make my father's house, key, key, do not make my father's house a house of corruption, a house of merchandise. Do not change what it was meant to be. He reserved the right. And, and notice what it says. Then the disciples, verse 17, remembered that it was written. And so they, the quotation is from Psalm 69. That they, they remember a verse, a passage of scripture, because they were trained in this. They, had, they were familiar with the writings of the Old Testament. That was their Bible. That was Jesus' Bible. And they remembered a passage. They said, this reminds us of a passage we read. It says, the zeal of my, ho- his, the zeal of my house, the zeal of his house has consumed me. The zeal of my house has consumed me. The zeal for your house has consumed me. And this, they immediately characterized what they saw, which must have shocked them a little bit. For Jesus physically cast out and cleansed the temple. And their overwhelming sense of the, the characteristic in this moment that they connected with them was zeal. And zeal has been described as love ablaze, love on fire, passion. The passion for the house consumed me. And that was their immediate connection. Now, when he says, my father's house, that is an important statement because he's saying this is a legitimate action. The, in other words, it's my right because it's my home. So he start, you've made my father's house. So he's saying, this is, you have a right to keep, you, you have a right to decide what goes on in your house. And he's saying, you've, taken, you've moved into my house and you've corrupted it. And I'm not taking this. This is unacceptable. And Jesus cared about the fathers. And this is the, the real point that I would like to, to get us to move into, is that Jesus cared about the father's interests and reputation. He was enormously committed to the father's interests and reputation. His zeal was connected to the father's interests and reputation. Now jump over to Hebrews 10, keeping this passage in mind. In Hebrews 10, which we were just at 12, but we'll go back. In Hebrews 10, we have this whole statement. Uh, it's, it's a whole different uh, situation that is being referred to here, but it's a great passage, one worth visiting. 
It says that therefore, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, this, and in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me, I have come, O God, to do your will. Sacrifices of the Old Testament would not be enough. It required a human body, which would be the ultimate sacrifice, right? To take away the sin, not to cover it, not to push it ahead like the sacrifices did, anticipating the ultimate covering, the ultimate one, the sin bearer who would take away the sin of the world, Jesus, that John declared him to be the Lamb of God. So, so the writer of Hebrews is, is connecting with this deep thought about how Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, but the phrase that stands out to me is verse 7. Lo, it is written in the volume of the book, I have come to do the, thy will, O God. That, that Jesus was tenaciously committed to doing the will of God, even, if it, even though it meant his complete giving up of his life. This idea of tenacity and of commitment to the purposes of God. And in, in John 5, and I'll just read this. You don't have to turn there. In John 5, 30, I mean, Jesus makes the statement that, in, that uh, I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own. I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Hebrews, again, lo, it is written in the volume of the book, I have come to do thy will, O God. This, this tenacious commitment. Jesus lives in alignment with the Father, and his zeal is connected to his submission to the Father. It has everything to do with Father's reputation. It is a, he, he models for us that part of being a superman for God, part of it, is connected to following his lead and his example. And what kind of an example, as we are asked to look unto Jesus, who is the model, the ultimate model. He was zealous. Listen, guys. He was zealous for the Father's interests. And I want to submit to you that we are called to be, as we leave this place, zealous for the Father's interests. At the end of the day, it is the great call over our lives. Whether we're a leader in a large fashion, a small fashion, um, whatever scope, a sphere of influence God has entrusted, that really is not the issue. In fact, the Bible is pretty clear that don't necessarily desire more because you're going to be held accountable for more. Now, whoa, what are you saying? Play it safe, back out, live in delusion like Dad did in that film we watched? No. What I'm saying is don't just recklessly um, run for stuff because remember that whatever God puts in your hand, you're going to be required to give an accountability for how you steward it. So be very thoughtful about what we aspire to. We're put in this tension place, aren't we? On the one hand, we cannot be passive and expect God to do anything in our lives of real significance. At the same token, we're called not to be just reckless and overly ambitious to the point that we're not thinking through what we're really going to be required to do in relation to what we accept there's a, there's a responsibility that's connected to what we choose to say yes to. That responsibility means that when we say yes to be a group leader, for example, we are, we are now making at some level a covenant with God to advocate Father's business. 
which means we cannot afford to do shoddy work for our Father. And one of the things I appreciated about what Rusty said was he was making a case that how we manage small things that no one else sees is connected to our larger way of living. And in the big decisions of, of life or business, a lot of it just shows up in the little character decisions that we make. So our, and that, that perfectly weaves in to the stuff we've been talking about, how really it's foundational. That's what Kyung talked about, right? At the end of the day, it's the foundational work. Remember I talked about Gordon McDonald and that conversation he was having with Bill Hybels and how they were discussing this kind of trend that they noted when a lot of people shipwrecked their lives, a lot of men. It's in that 46, 47 range. And one of the things he talked about, and they were being, he was being, he goes, he took a chance. He said, you know what? I'm going to be even more specific than just saying 40s and 50s. He goes, I'm going to give you an exact age when I've noted things really happen. And he went into this whole list. But one of the things he talked about, again, I mentioned it, was whatever weaknesses of character development that have been, been planted in the 20s and 30s start to show up in the 40s and the 50s. And a lot of guys don't have established such poor habits character-wise that when the, when the heat is on, it melts down. And, and the Lord, I think, really is trying to establish things in us that whatever we've been given by God to steward, to manage, whatever entrustment, it may be a Sunday school ministry, it may be a parking ministry, it may be the, the men's group that we're involved in, and we're the host or we're the, we're the team leader, that we, we take that responsibility and we honor it and we, and we live into it with dignity and with preparation. We treat it like qual men of quality and not, sh and not like it's, again, not just treating it like casually, like, well, it's just a leftover thing I do on the side. If you know what, again, if we do that, then how can we expect God to really show up in our lives? And, and actually entrust us with more responsibility. And we say, well, I don't even want the responsibility. Well, okay, that's, that's not the deal. May God stir our heart to be willing to be a servant. Because at the end of the day, servant, listen, is about accepting responsibility on behalf of others. And with that responsibility comes a willingness to limit my pleasure on behalf of others. I give something up. Jesus is the ultimate model of giving away life for others. And that is the ultimate example of a servant leader. So the person who wants to back away from leadership responsibility frequently, frequently has to do with selfishness and an unwillingness to yield what we want for our life. Because at the end of the day, leadership is about being a servant so that others may live out of what we give away. Jesus models that for us. He teaches us that we are to be Okay, how would I describe zealous about Father's business? Stay with me on this point. But in my mind, it means that we are to be radically submitted to His will. To be radically submitted to His will. I have come to do Thy will, O God. I will give attention to discerning what it is You want. I will stir myself up to take hold of God. Again, the prophet Isaiah, we've been hammering this. Is there no one is there no one who will stir himself up to take hold of God? Who will do it? The, the last passage we'll look at in our time together, Matthew 8. And this will be the, the finale. But in Matthew 8, verse 5, 
Now there was, now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, which I actually had a chance to go go to a year and a half with, ago when I went to Israel with, with David Brickner, my friend, the the director of Jews, the executive director of Jews for Jesus. David took me there. I met with the team, and one of the places we went to was Capernaum, and that was a real interesting experience. Just kind of see physically the place. The little, it was small. I was amazed by the smallness of, of it. It was more of a village than anything else. But a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed and he's dreadfully tormented. Which is a lot of times the effect of sin. I'm not talking about physically. I'm talking about sometimes we have felt what it is like to be tormented and to be paralyzed because of stuff we've got ourselves involved in. And that is something God wants to heal us out of. That's what we've been talking about in part, about kryptonite, about getting better. But the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy. This is, <laughs> the centurion, he says, Jesus says, I will come, and I will come, I will come then, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come into my house, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also. And then he gives a point of revelation that Jesus marvels at. He says, for I also am a man under authority. I have soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And, and to my servant, I say, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, it's one of the, listen, when you make Jesus marvel, you've done something good. And it says, Jesus marveled. He was not just impressed, he was amazed. He was moved. He marveled at this man's conception, this outsider's conception, because he, he was not a full Jew. He was most likely a God-fearer, a, a convert, a believer, but not one fully engaged in the Jewish religion. But he clearly had a faith in God. And this centurion, Jesus is enormously impressed with his understanding of the kingdom of God. And what he has done is the centurion had taken his perception of authority and he had projected his world, his paradigm of how he executed things into Jesus' operation at a kingdom level. And he had, he had touched into a very deep vault of understanding. And Jesus was extraordinarily impressed because he, he says, you know what, I understand authority and really you don't need to come, besides the humility component, which was, just, which was also custom as well, there is this sense of, but really you don't need to come. You're basically, you have authority to speak the word and it'll be done. Oh, wow. Jesus says, Jesus says, it says that he, Jesus, when he, he marveled and he said to those, I tell you this, I, I tell you right now, you heard it here. I haven't heard faith like this in all of Israel. And they, all the disciples were going, whoa. I mean, Jesus got excited. He marveled. He was impressed. He says, I've not found her, and I say to you, and many will come. He says, this is, by the way, I wasn't going to look at verses 11 and 12, but I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's us. 
Jesus looking through the corridor of time at the people coming from all the regions of the world to sit in the promises of the fathers. And he says, but the sons of the kingdom, there will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking about the conflict between the kingdom of righteousness and the kingdom of hell. But he makes, he's in a way saying, this is a first fruit of many, this centurion. Okay, what's the point that I was trying to make, though, really? Two phrases. We'll close with these ideas. I, what does he say? Why you don't need to bother to come? You can just say it. He, he, what does he say? He says, one, I am a man under authority. I am a man under authority. You know what that is? When you're under authority, that's called submission. Jesus was modeled submission. He was in alignment with the Father. He said, I don't do anything. I reread it, John 5. I don't do anything unless I hear it from the Father. So there's an alignment issue. So the, the first point of his understanding was, I too am a man under authority. He, he connects Jesus living in authority, under authority. He says, I'm under authority. He goes, and, and you think about it, and he says, and I have soldiers under me. That's responsibility. So we see some, I too am a man under authority, a submission, and I have soldiers under me. That's responsibility. Submission and responsibility captured in those two phrases. His submission, what was his submission to? It was to the Roman Empire. He had a hierarchy of command. He had, what had he done? Check this out. He had surrendered his rights, hadn't he? In his day, a centurion was yielding completely his autonomy. He basically gave, we talk about how the army owns you. Well, the Roman army really owns you. And he had given up his rights. He had given up his time, his life, his dress. He dressed Roman, soldiered. He had given up his ability uh, to determine even not only his mode of dress, but the food that he ate, even as a Roman soldier. His life was precisely submitted to an authority that was called Rome. He understood that. And he was also submitted for his work because his work was war. And so these, these two components of submission. And what's more, we're told he was in oversight, wasn't he? He was in oversight, responsible to direct and exert influence. So here's the deal. His responsibility was both upward and downward. It was vertical, and it was, it was, it was going straight up, and it was also down. He, he had responsibility to those who were in authority over him, and he had, he had responsibility, as it were, for those who he, he was, uh, in a sense, serving as a leader over. You see this du duality in this statement. And I want to just say that God calls us, you and me, to submission and obedience as well. The same exact way that, God, that this man referred to his, his particular uh, situation, to surrender and to pledge allegiance to the kingdom in the same exact way that the centurion said, I too am a man under authority. I think the Lord would have us also to live completely under the authority of the king, to remember that our life ultimately is called to be a life submitted to the purposes of God, which means we have decided to yield some of our rights to execute the purposes of God. That means I will not live completely free and to do what in the way that we define freedom in our culture, which is do whatever I want whenever I want to do it and take care of me. I live submitted to something higher. So part of the brilliance in the centurion and why he had the ability to connect deeply with who Jesus was was because he understood the principle of submission. He had an advantage 
that a lot of us don't have because he was in a system, in an environment where it totally made sense. He understood authority. He understood that he had a responsibility under to give something away. And a lot of times this is a key to our, to our ability to influence anyone for the kingdom of God. It starts with, are we ourselves first submitted? And so a big part of what we've been trying to drive home here is our need to submit ourselves to the voice of the Lord and to rid ourselves of those things that will handicap and undermine what God's trying to do in our lives. Are we ourselves submitted? We have to make a point of surrender to say, Lord, we, we have our allegiances to the kingdom. We will take up the cross that you have for us. We will endure hardness as what a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We too are called to be submitted. But not only are we called to be submitted, again, I too am a man under authority. Jesus was under authority as a son. But we are also called to accept responsibility. And those are the, those are the two points here. To be submitted unto God and his purposes in our lives, and then secondly, connected to it. And we kind of, you know what's interesting? It came up here a little bit in the post-discussion. And I know it was a good, good question. It was a good point. But one of the things that came up was, you know, what, what, if I, what if I don't want to do it? But can you see that part of honoring the Lord is connected to our willingness to accept responsibility? And that if the church of Jesus Christ is going to flourish, it's going to flourish because, yes, men are willing to step up and accept responsibility. If, if the church in San Francisco is going to have any type of a witness, it's going to be because men have been made a decision to contend for enough of holiness that they're not feeling like hypocrites, to step up and accept responsibility, to be pillars in the church, to be bearers of weight, to accept assignments, to cultivate a life and craft a life in such a way that gives us the capacity to serve and to be willing to be a pace setter, as we heard from Lewis this morning, to be a pattern, to be an example. Look, there's pressure when you do that. When you accept responsibility, you have some pressure. It isn't easy, but it's awesome because people live out of your life. It, take, it, it does cost, we give away something. We do. It now means, but you know what, that's sort of like when I got married. I gave away something. My wife has a claim on me. I may not like that claim all the time. But it goes both ways. And it's really interesting. Guys love the part about having a claim on their wife, but they won't, don't want much of one on themselves. It's nice to use the golden rule in that relationship, too. It changes the perspective a lot of times for us. It reminds us that we're supposed to be, yes, a leader, but a servant leader. In fact, everything about this passage has to do with submitting to the Father and accepting responsibility. That's servant leadership in the kingdom. I submit my life to you, Lord. Also, I don't tell you what I want to do for you, Saul. Remember? I don't dictate the terms. If we can, if this is, this is how I want to, what, serve you, to obey is better than sacrifice. It's not what I want to do for God. It's what God is asking me to do. And we've already talked about, yes, doing is connected to being. But again, you hear the point? Why was Saul rejected? Because he was willful. Why was he willful? Because he was stubborn. 
And his stubbornness was connected to the fact that he was dictating the terms to God of what he was willing to do instead of saying, what do you want me to do? And I will do it. I too, the centurion says, am a man under authority. I do what I'm told. I execute the orders that are given to me. And because I do that, I have also authority. And I use that authority as well. I say to my men, go, they go. I say, come, and they come. But he was suggesting that you cannot be in authority if you are not submitted to authority at some level. And you can take that all the way back up to the king, Jesus. But that is an important concept. And I think there is a reluctance on the part of men in the church to accept responsibility, whether it's being responsible. Because why? It means we're going to have to work at stuff. It means that I'm going to have to, I can't, I'm going to have to actually sacrifice. But lo, it is written in the volume of the book, I have come to do thy will, O God. It is a sacrifice. No question about it. It costs us something. But man, the fruit, if we really believe that at the end of the day, what really matters is what we do for God. Oh, wow. The people whose lives are affected, the little ones who are blessed, it's, it's huge. It's a big deal. It's a big deal for men, not just, you know, a pastor who, you know, there's enough, that, that, I've got my own battles. But it's easy for people. So I remember when I wasn't a pastor, how sometimes it was easier for me to witness. Because I could be really zealous about God and no one would say, oh, well, you're just, it's because that's what you do. How do I argue that point? That's, I think I kind of know why Paul said, I chose, when I came into your situation, Paul said one time, he goes, I chose actually not to take anything. In fact, I'm just going to do my own work on the side so that none of you can use that against me. So I'll just make some tents on the side so you don't have to worry about that. And we can have some real conversation. I mean, that was Paul. And Paul was pretty, he was strategic in the way he went at things. What I'm saying is my point was more having to do with the fact that I think a lot of you have way more influence potential than you ever give yourself credit for for the purposes of God. And what the Lord wants to do in our lives is teach us to be submitted to him, to bow our knee before the throne of the Lord, and to kiss kiss the scepter, to kiss the son, the bowed knee, and say, I am your servant. Use me. Send me where you want me to go, if the need is there. The question is, what will um, you do when God is asking us, when God is asking you to do it, and then what will your, our attitude be when we do it? Because I've known some people that said, well, you know, I'll do it, but there's such a shoddy of uh, casual, half-hearted, uh, try to just skid it in, get there last minute, go, you know, no preparation of heart, no sense of responsibility, no quality approach to it. You say, well, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's just like a, you know, what, who cares? I mean, it's parking ministry or it's just the kids. No one ever, nobody ever sees it anyway. You know, it matters. It matters to God. It matters to God, which is ultimately why we do what we do. The little things actually do matter. Jesus has noticed his little things. He sits in the treasury, and it says that Jesus was watching how they gave. And he noticed the one widow who nobody else noticed. Don't, say, don't tell me little things don't get noticed by God. They do. Because God sees differently than human beings see. And he looks at our heart, and our heart is reflected a lot of times by the quality of what we're willing to do. If we're going to serve, first off, I'm saying we should serve. Secondly, I'm saying we should serve well. And if we agree to do it, then we should do it well. If we're going to be a, a leader of a men's group 
or we choose to say, I will participate in one, then participate. Don't treat it like it's an afterthought. Like, oh, yeah, you know, I have some time, or something came up, you know, I got tickets to a ball game. Or, you know, whatever, I'm tired tonight, I've got a headache. I'm not in the mood. Oh, come on, man. That stuff, that's, how can God bless that? And then we get in a, in a pinch and we need the Holy Spirit to show up for us in a powerful way. And we've been treating it that, like that. According to your faith, be it done unto you. How we, how we hit the ground determines the victory frequently in our lives. How we attend to little things actually sometimes is a key to what God's giving God permission. Or how do you say? God giving us permission to be entrusted with more. I'm, I, I believe that. And I'm going to just exhort you in the name of the Lord to submit, that we are to submit our lives to God and then we are also be, to accept responsibility to use our influence as men in the circle of our manhood, in the circle of our friendships, in our family, in our workplace, in our ministry. And remember that our power is ultimately connected to our submission. Self-control flows out of that bent knee. So, Lord, I thank you for uh, the time that we've had together as brothers. And this is obviously just the conclusion of our time together. And I pray, Lord, the, the point wasn't to guilt anybody into doing anything. It's to get us open to hearing what it is you're trying to say. But we're not ashamed about saying that there's a need and that we need men to step up. There's nothing... There's no manipulation there. That's the truth. I pray for brothers who will see beyond either one of two things, Lord. One would be a feeling of inadequacy. And I come against the liar and the thief who seeks constantly, Lord, either to get us filled with pride or to break us down to where we think we're worthless. And the truth is we're neither great nor small. We're just ordinary guys, really, Lord, who want to live for you. And, and if you're willing, Lord, we're willing. And I just I come against that spirit that feels like it, it because of things that we've, we've been involved with or challenges we're having in our personal life to be holy before God, that somehow we, we just have to sit this thing out and our, our method of coping is to just detach. And so I stand against that, Lord. That's one thing. I stand against in the, name of the, in the name of the Lord. The other thing, Lord, so that feeling of inadequacy, unworthiness, um, ineligibility, Lord, let's cleanse ourselves, put on new garments, be confident in you that if you're asking us to do something, you will give us the strength to do it. And there will be tremendous growth that will occur as we step forward and accept the responsibility as a submitted one. I, too, am a man under authority, but I also am willing to accept it that responsibility. But also, Lord, the other side of the coin is the person who is, is saying, you know what, I don't, I don't want to do it because I've got my own agenda. And I come against that also in the name of the Lord. And I say, Lord, remind us that we are not our own. If we truly believe what we say we believe, that we were bought with a price, therefore we are called to glorify God in our body and our spirit, which are yours, Lord, then there is a responsibility that goes along with it. And really, that responsibility does fall primarily in a church, and I think in the kingdom, not exclusively, but primarily 
on the men. Because if the men, Lord, are willing to accept the mandate, Lord, a lot of great things happen in the church. And I just pray, Lord, that some of us will be called to quit sitting on our talent, to not play it casual, to not have a whatever attitude, let somebody else take the responsibility, but to step up to the plate and to stand up in the gap and to be responsible for the well-being.